I would ask you to turn in your Bibles this morning to the 19th chapter of the Gospel according to John, John chapter 19. Up to this point in our studies, in the narrative of the passion of our Lord, we have come to the point of his death. Jesus has died. He has bowed his head, he has given up the spirit, and his body remains hanging upon the cross. We saw last time that the soldiers being prompted by the Jewish leaders that did not want to see their high holy day of the Sabbath of the Passover defiled by bodies hanging upon the crosses as that was uh, a violation they believed of the book of Deuteronomy that said if one is left hanging on a tree that uh, the land is cursed so they did not want to see that curse come upon their land and they prompt a pilot to break the legs of these ones who were crucified, that death would come more quickly. But when the soldiers came, they saw that Jesus already was dead, and hence leaving his legs unbroken, one soldier pierced his side with a spear, just to ensure that in fact he was dead, and out from his body flowed the blood and the water. Ordinarily, at this point, The Romans would have simply left the bodies of those crucified on these crosses, just waiting decomposition, waiting for these bodies to become food for the vultures. It was left up to families. They could make known that they desired to have their dead, and they would provide all the costs of their burials. Uh, They would take them off of the cross and Uh, provide for a funeral service, a burial service in accordance with the Jewish customs. Um, The Jews themselves, if they were wanted these bodies off of the cross, maybe with the other two, uh, those bodies were simply taken and they were cast into a mass grave. That was basically what they did. basically saying these people that died were criminals, they were outcasts, they were uh, the scum of society, and they did not give them much in the way of a dignified funeral or burial. And uh, Jesus might have experienced that end if they had their way, but something else occurs in the plan and purpose of God. And what happens is the appearance of a man by the name of Joseph of Arimathea, And an interesting thing is that he is mentioned in each of the Gospels, and we're told a great deal about him from each of the Gospels. Each Gospel provides another piece of information about Joseph of Arimathea. It's a fascinating study to just look at all that's told us about this man, about his background, about his calling, about his character. The book of Matthew, in chapter 27, And verse 57 informs us that he's wealthy. He is a wealthy man. And we might be told that not only because it was true, but it might just be highlighting the fact that the 53rd chapter of Isaiah that has the last of the servant songs that in most, I think, clear clear ways does reflect much of the way in which Jesus was treated and suffered 
uh, despised and rejected by men, men of sorrows, acquainted with grief, esteemed stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. The Lord poured on him the iniquity of us all. The part of the description that is given of the death of this figure, of the servant of the Lord, is what's found in verse 9 of chapter 53. We were told that they made his grave with the wicked. Maybe those who died next to him, who also were buried at that time, but yet was also with a rich man in his death. The rich man comes along and something happens that uh, does make something of a difference to the way in which the body of Jesus was disposed of. Not cast into a common grave, not made something of an outcast, but uh, taken by people that loved him, taken by people who cared for him, who would give him a proper burial in accordance with Jewish customs. So he's a wealthy man. He's rich. Mark's Gospel, chapter 15 and verse 43, as well as Luke 23 and verse 5, relate that he was an important member of the council. He was a leader of the highest body of the Jewish uh, government of, of, of their own court that was uh, a court that operated um, under the of course the authority of Rome it was not independent but yet he was an important personage in the highest council of judgment amongst the Jews the Sanhedrin Luke calls him in the very same chapter chapter 23 he calls him a good and righteous man so he's a rich man he's a man who is an important man a member of the Sanhedrin He's called a good and righteous man. And Luke tells us that he was a man who did not consent to their decision and action against Jesus. He actually had a dissenter upon the Sanhedrin that didn't want him crucified, that didn't want him treated the way that the Jewish leaders wanted to treat Jesus. He did not consent to their decision and action against Jesus. Mark and Luke also note that he was a man who was looking for the kingdom of God. He was looking for the kingdom of God. And generally speaking, people in the Bible that were looking for the kingdom of God, they ended up finding the king. They ended up finding the kingdom of God in the personage of the king. And I think that Joseph of Arimathea may well have seen the death of Jesus as being the death of Israel's king. You don't just allow the king of the Jews to be cast into a common grave for his dead body not to be tended to and cared for in accordance with the proper customs that would show honor, show respect, show love to the one who is the king of the Jews. And Mark says, is going to Pilate and asking for the body of Jesus came as the result of his taking courage. Taking courage. This was not an easy thing for him to do. It must have taken a lot of courage to descend from the council and say we should not be putting this man to death. It probably took even more courage to go to the governor and say, I want the body. I want to take away the body and give the body of Jesus a proper burial. So that's something that is told us about Joseph of Arimathea in the three Gospels, other than John. The only possible blemish upon Joseph's character may be found, depending how you understand it, in John's statement in John chapter um, 19 and verse 38. And we're going to read it, but I want to point out that he's called here 
a disciple of Jesus, but then there's a bit of a caveat that we have, but secretly for fear of the Jews. So this was someone who apparently was in some way was a secret disciple. We'll say more about that in a moment. Let's read it. Verse 38 of chapter 19 says that after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. It's actually 100 litres, which is approximately, to be understood, is 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus, bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. John's addition to the picture of the other Gospels is that he calls Joseph a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for the fear of the Jews. Now, whatever blemishes upon Joseph's character, that he feared the Jews, and hence his discipleship was not open, was not made clear, it was kept in secrecy, it's clear that at this point, in this act, Joseph casts off all fear. He adopts strong courage and he identifies himself with Jesus in his death in close and decisive commitment in his death to care for the body of the king. Now the secrecy of his discipleship Maybe just the describing of his policy of reserve amid hostility. There's places in the world to profess the name of Jesus or to evangelize is a death sentence. You'd be taken away and you would be imprisoned and you would be tried. And I think people in that situation need to hold their faith, confess their faith, proclaim their faith with a great deal of wisdom. Jesus taught his disciples to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. I think some of us think because we have the freedom of this country, in this country to say what we want, where we want, when we want, that it would be perfectly fine for us to be in people's faces all the time. You just read people on the internet and see that that's what they do. Constant confrontation about the gospel. Constant confrontation about anything that people want to opine upon. Uh, anonymously online. You not really get away with it. But is it seemly? Is it proper? At all times and in all seasons to be preaching? To be proclaiming? To be declaring? To be confessing? Well, some people would say yes, but I would say you need to be wise. Wise as a serpent, harmless as a dove. I used to work. My first real job after the Lord saved me 
was in a Jewish nursing home in the city of New York. And uh, there was a whole host of nations that were employed there. People from the islands of the Caribbean, uh, people from all parts of the globe were on staff there. People from all kinds of religious backgrounds. It was owned by Jews. Many Jews were in the employment of the place. There were people from nations that were Islamic. And I had a friend who would just simply say every time he had a break, he would just simply go out towards the nursing station on any one of the floors and start to read the Bible and proclaim the Bible. Well, people, first of all, they stopped listening to him. (laughs) They were not hearing him. And secondly, people started to complain. This was not something that was seemly. There's a time, there's a place, there's a way to confess your faith. And in the midst of people's displeasure, in the midst of opposition being mounted against you, in the midst of being marked and no longer being heard, you need to be really wise on what you say, when you say it, and how you say it. Joseph is a man who was a leader in his nation on the council of the Sanhedrin. Not, no doubt no doubt realized he was in the midst of people who were anti-Jesus. It was a hostile workplace for Christians. Anyone who would be in alliance with Jesus, it would be a very hostile workplace. They would realize he would simply not prevail to be an open proclaimer of his love and attachment to Christ. If in fact his love and attachment were things he held in his heart and would apparently he did. He did. When it mattered, at a time when there was no one of influence to go to Pilate, and he is a rich man, he is a leader on the Sanhedrin, had access to Pilate to take away the body of Jesus. There was no one else in a similar place to, go, to, to perform this service. Joseph was there. When it mattered, He took a stand. But it mattered. Whatever secrecy might have characterized him at other times, then became opened. He did not consent in the decision to put Jesus to death. He refused to be complicit in the murderous activities of the Sanhedrin. He took his stand and used his influence to take away our Lord's body. And it wouldn't be further abused. It wouldn't be further put to shame. It wouldn't be cast into some common grave. He courageously went to Pilate. He was obviously known by the governor, known because he was wealthy, known because he had position known because he had influence, he had access, and he uses that access, and he asks that he might take away the body of Jesus. Pilate granted him the permission to do so. And so he comes, and he takes away the body. Luke says he took the body down, and he wrapped it in a linen shroud. Matthew, Matthew adds it was a clean linen shroud he was going to treat the body of Jesus in accordance with the custom of the Jews makes you wonder 
Because part of the custom of the Jews at the death of someone you knew or someone that you loved or someone that you had a clear interest in was not just to dispose of their body. That was before sundown. You did that. The body was out of the way. But then there was the practice. You see it many times in the Old Testament where people died. There was a seven-day period of public mourning. I just wonder, I mean, I don't know, that it was the intention of Joseph to enter into that seven-day period. Now, some of you know the Jews have a custom of a longer period of 30 days, and they call it sitting shiva. It's a, it's a process of grief. You know, we, they don't leave the bodies at the funeral homes for a week and then have a, a service. Again, the bodies are disposed of immediately before sundown. If somebody dies at, at, at night, it's the next day. The body is taken and it's buried. But yet there is a period where the loved ones gather together, where the loved ones grieve, where the loved ones pray with one another and support one another. It's a very amazingly effective way of dealing with the problem of, of grief. It's not just they gather for a night at a funeral home and everybody just disperses. There's a commitment to hang around, to eat with one another, and to, to reflect with one another, and to remember the dead. And uh, it's likely that Joseph was a man committed to do just that. He was committed to make certain that the body of Jesus received the full honor of the customary practices of Jewish burial and the customary practices of the Jewish grieving process. But it's not just Joseph. John brings forward the additional figure of Nicodemus at this point. Verse 39, we're just told Nicodemus also, also a leader, teacher of the Jews. Jesus called him in chapter 3. John reminds us that Nicodemus was one who earlier had come to Jesus by night. And that might have been an evidence of his own desire to be a disciple, sort of on the sly, a bit secretive, not out in the open. It might have been that nighttime was just a good way, good time to come to a busy teacher, healer. I mean, I don't think we appreciate it, but uh, I was reading somewhere of the reality that uh, only one-third of the population of the people of Israel at this time would make it past 30 years. Only a third. People would die. They would die of all sorts of things. If you made it out of infancy and you made it out of childhood and the childhood diseases that were common, the chances are you would get sick and there was no one to heal you. So when you think about that, all this death going on in Israel, when a healer comes along, there's a lot of people that want healing. You remember those crowds that came to Jesus and they were so great he had to go out into a boat to teach them. They were just pressing in on him because they wanted healing. They needed healing. Here was a healer in their midst and they were people filled with all manner of diseases. And so maybe that's the reason Nicodemus came at night when Jesus had a bit more leisure time uh, to speak with him. It's also possible that John is using the nighttime as the season of the darkness of the human race. It tells us that, Nick, that, uh, that, uh, that uh, Judas went out to betray him, and then the comment is made, and it was night. And it was night. The betrayal of Judas that took place in the darkness, it took place at night. It may just be also that recognition that the world is cast into darkness and Jesus comes upon the scene as the light of the world as he declares himself to be in chapter 8 of John's Gospel.
But John reminds us that it was this one who came to Jesus by night earlier. He now comes forth in the light of day. It's not night any longer. He comes forth in the light of day. And he comes bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 70 pounds in weight. That's the puzzling part of it. 75 pounds in weight. What in the world are you doing bringing that much in the way of herbs and spices? Well, likely because he figured that this new tomb of Joseph was going to be populated by more than Jesus, ultimately. And that when people came to bury others in that tomb, there would be a stench, there would be a smell. He did not expect Jesus to rise. How people criticized Nicodemus for that. I had heard one writer, read one writer, who said he couldn't have been a Christian because he, he actually believed Jesus was going to be in the tomb a long time. Well, believe me, folks, everybody believed Jesus was going to be in the tomb for a long time. Nobody was expecting a resurrection from the dead. Nobody was, was, going to, was anticipating what God would do on the third day. Think of the disciples on the road to Emmaus. They said, we had hoped it was he who would deliver Israel. But he's dead. When you're dead, you're dead. It's not a modern discovery that dead people don't rise. People in the ancient world knew that well, that the dead do not rise. Unless there's a mighty intervention of the power of God to do something most unusual, something that doesn't happen every day, and something that people who hear about it would not necessarily believe. At least they wouldn't believe it first. The people that meet with Jesus on the Mount of Olives in Matthew 28 when he gives the Great Commission, and even there, even at that point where so many had seen him, still says some doubted. Some doubted. Yeah, we hear what you guys are saying, but hey, look, I'm from Missouri, and uh, that's the show me state. you got to show me. I don't believe this. This was not some pre-scientific people that just were gullible to think that the dead were... I mean, they knew what happened when people died. You don't stop dying. You don't get out of the tomb. You're dead. And it's a permanent state and condition. Nicodemus knew it was a permanent state and condition. And Jesus was the first body that was going to go into that new tomb, but he's not going to be the last one. Jesus is going to stay there. And other people are going to come into that tomb with other dead people. Let's make this place smell fragrant. Let's make this place smell good. Probably he was thinking not only of the spices that would be placed within the linen shroud, but also that would just simply decorate the entire tomb. So when Jesus' body that he fully expected would decompose and there would be a stench, there would be this amazing display of of, um, spices and of herbs and of uh, these things that would would send forth a, 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 a smell that would counteract the stench of death. Folks, these men did what they could. They couldn't raise the dead. They had no expectation of the resurrection of the dead. They had a dead man. They believed to be the Son of God. A dead man. They believed to be the King of Israel. But they did what they could. We could take him off of the cross. We can bury him with honors. In the way that was accustomed for the Jews. We could mourn for him and grieve for him. We could beautify his tomb. We could make it smell not like death. 
So this inordinate amount of myrrh and aloes he brings along for the purposes of doing what he could in the midst of a situation where what in the world can you do? So they take the body. They bound it in linen cloths with the spices as is the burial custom of the Jews. That was one of the things that John doesn't remind us about with regard to Nicodemus is that he too made his stand for Jesus on the council. We do read about it in chapter 7. Chapter 7 and verse 50 Nicodemus said to the council that again was looking for blood. They were looking to arrest Jesus. The soldiers came and they said, where is he? Why haven't you taken him? And the soldiers said, no man ever spoke like this man spoke. But they're, they're determined he's going to be arrested. He's, they're determined he's going to be tried. They're determined he's going to be convicted. They're determined he would be put to death. And Nicodemus stands in the midst of a hostile group of people and he says does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does and even in this slight recommendation of some measure of fairness to Jesus you see the hostility of the people on this council they quickly shut shut him down they say are you from Galilee too search and arise and see no prophet has arisen from Galilee of course they're just displaying their own ignorance of the true place of our Lord's birth that he was in fact born in the city of David he was in fact born in Bethlehem as the prophets said Messiah would be now with the death of Jesus again Nicodemus comes joins Joseph we have a contingent of Jewish leaders on the council who have a, fact, a small faction and yet a real faction of pro-Jesus people loving him bringing what they, what they could do in the midst of a place and situation of death <coughs> to show their love and to show their devotion to the king of the Jews the son of the living God They bring him to the garden, which was the place of this new tomb of Joseph, where they dispose of the body of Jesus. And again, it's the garden that takes a principal place of importance in the destiny of the human race, both in creation and in terms of new creation. Again, it's in a garden that God placed the man, and man fell into sin. And it's in the garden that Jesus is laid to rest before his resurrection and from which a new creation arises by the plan and purpose of God now what John doesn't mention is something that is mentioned in the other gospels and that's the place of the women in this account as well Uh, Matthew tells us about Mary and the other Mary who sit opposite the tomb so there were others there. The women were there. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary who is expressed by, I believe it's Luke, who says she's the Mary, the mother of Joses, who is also there. And uh, 
We're told that there were, by Luke, there, there were women who followed, they saw the tomb, they returned, and they were prepared spices and ointments. So they were coming back to anoint the body of Jesus. Now remember, the, the spices that Nicodemus brought were probably dry spices. There was not anointing oil or anything like that. Remember, Jesus' body was already anointed by Mary at Bethany in anticipation of his, of his death. But of course, his, his body does never get anointed because of the resurrection, but they're preparing for that anointing of his body that they think that they will be able to perform uh, once the Sabbath had ended. And we're told that it's on the Sabbath day that they rested. The rest of the Sabbath day came and the body of Jesus is laid to rest on the seventh day, on the Sabbath day. And I think in a real sense there is some lessons to learn from this account and i got basically two of them in mind. Uh, one is a theological lesson, and the second is a practical lesson. I want to begin with the theological lesson that we, I think we need to learn f- from this. I think the mention of the Sabbath... Oh, let me just begin with this, begin to, to state that the, the story of the burial of Jesus is not inconsequential in Christian history and in Christian theology. It finds a place in the Apostles' Creed, Again, the lines of the Apostles' Creed tell us that he, was, he suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified, dead, and buried. He was buried. And the third day he was raised from the dead. But the burial of Jesus is incorporated into the Apostles' Creed. His burial shows he was truly dead. Every bit as much as the spear within his side proved that he was surely dead. He didn't just swoon. He didn't just pass out. He was surely dead. His bodily functions had ended. Human life ceased to be. The body of Jesus was dead. There would have been no scan that would have picked up any signs of heartbeat, would have picked up any signs of brain activity. He was most certainly dead. He was crucified, dead, and buried. Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 15 and his distillation of the gospel tells us that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures that he was buried. That he was buried. And that he was raised the third day according to the scriptures. We think of Christian baptism as Paul alludes to it in Romans and Colossians and Galatians as well with the language of buried with him in baptism. Buried with him in baptism. Do you not know that those who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried with him through baptism and raised from the dead in newness of life. So in Christian thought, the burial of Jesus is meaningful. It's consequential. It should say something of, me, of importance to us. Well, what importance does it have? He was buried. Let me suggest theologically, it tells us The fact that he was buried and laid in the tomb and spent the Sabbath day, the seventh day, in that tomb is that the old creation truly died. The old creation truly died. Remember Paul said, if any man be in Christ, behold what? A new creation. God has come in the person of Jesus to bring about a new creation. The very fact that the Sabbath day entered into it, there was the rest of the Sabbath day, the seventh day, when God ended his work of creation, in creation account of Genesis. 
Now we have someone coming to bring in a new creation. And what does he do? He pays the price for our sins, dying the just for the unjust upon the cross, is laid in the tomb and spends the last day of that old creation before a new creation begins in resurrection, life, and glory, resting in the tomb. The new life is truly come in all of its fullness, in resurrection power, in resurrection life, a new order is brought in by the power of of the gospel by the power of a God who brings about a new reality because again that body that is sown into the tomb is a natural body it's the body they all knew in the days of Jesus' flesh in the days of his ministry in fact using the language of the days of his flesh indicates something happens in resurrection life and glory where that fleshly relationship is no longer now there's a spiritual reality. As Paul says, the body is sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. It's sown a corruptible body. It's raised incorruptible. It's sown a mortal body. It's raised immortal. There's something about resurrection life. That brings in a new order, a new quality of life, a new way of existence. And think about Jesus in the post-resurrection appearances. Something had changed in that body. Something was different. I mean, there was continuity, but there was discontinuity. I mean, Mary mistook him for the gardener. We're going to see about that in chapter 20. She thought he was the gardener. She didn't recognize Jesus. It was only when he spoke her name that she says, Rabbi, she realizes that he's the Lord. There's something about that body that was able to manifest itself in the midst of a group of people meeting with locked doors. And suddenly Jesus is there. So I don't know what the property of a spiritual body is, but I know there's something new that God brings about, a new creation. We're on the threshold of it at this point. God's doing something. An old creation has ended. The seventh day is the final day. The eighth day comes when Jesus emerges from the tomb and a new world enters in. A new way of being and existence enters in in the power of the resurrection of Jesus. His death is transformative in anticipation of a resurrection life and power that was to come. And I think there's something about the power of his death that's even seen in the fact that even prior to resurrection, people start coming to him. People start to be drawn to him. Remember he said that if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to me. Jesus draws out the secret disciples first. Joseph, Nicodemus, they come forth around the body of Jesus, this dead, lifeless body. And they declare their interest, they declare their love, they declare their adherence, their attachment to the Son of God. They're committed to do what they can and all that they can to honor Him. Then there's also the fact, theologically, that this is fine, that this is another component part of the way in which all these things were done to fulfill the scriptures. I mean, you read that part and you just read over it where it says he made his grave with the wicked and a rich man in his death. Yeah, well, rich man, who knows what that's about. 
And God is very clear to point out what it meant, what it's talking about. Is that there was someone that took his side, even in the midst of the being despised and rejected by men. There are those who came to believe. There was who has believed our report. And so chapter 53 begins, and the assumption is very few, but there were some. There were some who were drawn to Jesus, who saw in Jesus the one who is the light of the world, the resurrection and the life, who saw in Jesus the way, the truth, and the life, who saw in Jesus the one who is the good shepherd, who laid down his life for the sheep. And the scripture was fulfilled in the fact that there was a rich man who came to claim his body. But then there are the practical things that I think need to be said about this passage. And it's controversial, but in this world, what's not lately? But I would say, practically, I think this is a passage that tells us that we should honor the bodies of the dead. See, the body is part of our humanity. It's part of the way God made us and created us. He made the man dust from the earth. He made Adam from the Adamah, the dust from the earth. (coughs) Breathed into him the breath of life. But he formed the body. He formed man a body Spirit entity, body, soul, body, mind, however you want to say it, were two parts, a dual component part of our humanity. As we read in 2 Corinthians, there is such a thing as apart from the body. But yet when we're apart from the body, the body still is in some way united to that mind or soul or spirit or whatever the entity is that encompasses our true consciousness and our true humanity not that the body is not part of our true humanity it is but there's still a union that exists and not only so not only so so that the body will be joined to the spirit in resurrection but the body that goes into the tomb is joined to Jesus as well Paul can speak of those that are dead in Christ they're dead they're in the tombs but they're in Christ The body belongs to Jesus. He will not neglect it. He has purposed the body of his people for resurrection life and resurrection glory. Our bodies matter. And the way we would honor the person, the way we would honor someone's life, should be reflected in the way that we treat and dispose of their bodies. And again, I'm not laying down laws. If you have plans to cremate or know people that do, I'm not going to tell you that anything is going to happen that's going to spoil the resurrection. But I'm just saying, this is not the biblical way of disposing of the dead. Abraham bought only one place in Canaan that belonged to him, and it was a plot of ground that he bought from the uh, to bury his dead, the caves of Machpelah. We see that Joseph even went down in Egypt. He made arrangements when his death came. They take him back up to Canaan and bury him. They bury him. He wouldn't be laid in uh, Egyptian soil, but in the soil of purchased by Abraham. And Joseph, we're told, gave instructions concerning his bones. Even when his bones were just a bag of bones, they were to be taken back and they were to be buried. They were to be cared for. 
They weren't just to be discarded. They weren't just to be crushed under. They weren't just to be burnt. The bodies of believers belong to Jesus. They're the dead in Christ. They'll be raised from the dead. And there should be something in the way that we see our own bodies that it gets reflected in the plan. The fact that we make funeral plans that will be is somewhat keeping, not so much with the custom of the Jews, but just in, the, in, in consistency with what Scripture indicates about the importance and meaning of our bodily life. That it's not something we can just not have a sense of care, to be responsible in the disposition of even our bones in a place of burial such as we find in scripture so the New Testament makes a good deal about the body of Jesus crucified for us dead for us buried for us it's something that brings to end the end the corruption of the sin of the old creation and brings into the into being the resurrection power and glory that God will begin to look at next week through his resurrection power bringing in a new way of things a new order of things a new creation oh, may God be pleased to bless our consideration of, of the body buried of the burial of our Lord and impress within our hearts the importance of our life in the body and impress upon our hearts something of the theology of death and burial as we would think about the burial of our Lord Jesus. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're thankful for this time we can spend in your word and though there are things that we enter into when we think of death and burial that are utterly mysterious, utterly beyond our ability to say the final word upon we're thankful we could say as much as we've said this morning that perhaps is helpful and informative and would feed our faith and feed our hope and we pray Lord that you would accomplish these ends even as a result of our gathering this morning and looking at this portion of your holy word we pray that you'd bless your truth to our hearts and minds we pray you dismiss us with your blessing continuing to rest upon us as we would ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.